0: How is everyone today? It's December. Is anybody else a little, just kind of shooken a little bit when you saw December on the calendar when you woke up this morning? Merry Christmas, Pastor Todd. I had to, I had to. (laughs) Kind of waiting for the exodus to leave. We're starting a new series a series, Christmas at Glad Tidings, and we're looking at some obscure Christmas texts. Now, we understand that the Bible in its absolute entirety points to one thing, and that is God's plan for salvation for creation, and that salvation is found in one person and one person alone, and that is Jesus. It's a perfect Sunday school answer. Therefore, the entire Bible points to Jesus. But to be more specific this month, we're going to be talking about the incarnation or the birth of Jesus. So to start our obscure Christmas texts series, we're going to be turning to the book of Numbers. Probably not the book you were thinking I was going to say. I'm going to guess that most people aren't digging into the book of Numbers all that often. But we're going to be looking there this morning, and if you've been brave enough and ventured into the book of Numbers, you'd probably know that it's best known for the story of Balaam and his talking donkey. It almost sounds fairy-tale-ish when you say it out loud, but that's okay. We believe that God can do anything. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Balaam this morning, not so much about him, but something that he said. But first we need to start with a little bit of backstory before before we get into our text this morning. The Israelites were on their way, they're on the edge of, their con- uh, sorry, they're on the, edge of the conquest of the land that God, had give, or God was giving to them and that he had promised to them many years before. In this section of the book of Numbers, we have the Israelites camped out in this area called the plains of Moab. It's just east of the Jordan River, just opposite Israel, or what would become the nation of Israel, the land of Israel. The Israelites, they aren't after Moab, though. They're just there. They're after Canaan. They don't want any trouble. They're just passing through. However, the king of Moab, his name is Balak, well, he's a little bit skittish because you've got this large crowd of Israelites somewhere to the tune of a few hundred thousand people, and they're camped out in his backyard. Can't blame him for being a little nervous about that. Now, of course, the reputation of Israel—it's kind of made its rounds. uh, Israel escaping the grips of slavery in Um, Egypt—it's made its rounds to the surrounding nations. We know that from other texts. And so Balak decides this morning, or Balak decides then that sending an army—probably not the best idea. I mean, they just escaped from Egypt, the most powerful country in the world. Uh, Maybe an army is not a good idea. So, so instead of of physically trying to remove them. He decides, let's try some other means, maybe getting some help and pronouncing a curse on the people will work. So Balak decides to enlist the help of a man who has international reputation for pronouncing blessing and curses. Balak wants a man named Balaam. Balaam is described in extra-biblical text as a seer of the gods. Balak wants Balaam to pronounce a curse, a national curse, on God's chosen people, the nation of of Israel. So Balak sends his princes, he sends the appropriate fees for divination, whatever that is, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, and he sends him on a course to enlist the help of, of Balaam. Now Balaam is a little bit of a confusing person in scripture. He's in 2 Peter 2.15, he, Peter refers to him, Balaam, as, a, as one who loved gain from wrongdoing. And the book of Jude more or less says the same thing. Nevertheless, Balaam, when he is asked to come, he consults God as to whether or not he should take this job. God unsurprisingly says, no, don't do that. But Balak decides, okay, I'm going to up the ante a little. I'm going to offer you more money. He sends more prestigious guests. And now Balaam, true to the way that the Bible describes him, agrees that, yes, I will go and pronounce this curse. It's amazing what money will get people to do. And so we get to the story of Balaam and his talking donkey and, and where an angel stops the donkey and Balaam gets angry and the donkey responds vocally and says, I've been a good donkey my whole life. I don't deserve for you to get angry with me. Balaam finally sees this angel and repents of his sin and he tells God, I'll turn around and go home if you want me to. But God tells Balaam this, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam arrives in Moab, Balaam and Balak and him go up on a hill where they can see the entirety of Israel, and they set up altars, they make sacrifices. Balak gives Balaam the go ahead and to curse the nation of Israel. Despite his paranoia, what Balak intended for evil, God intended for good. What was meant as a curse for Balak's own selfish and and his own paranoia and his own selfish gain became some of the most beautiful and poetic recordings in all of Scripture. And Balaam eventually pronounces four separate oracles over the nation of Israel. The first one beginning with, Who can I curse whom God has not cursed? And Balaam pronounces a blessing over the people of Israel as God had instructed. He goes on to a second and a third oracle of blessing, each one clearly making Balak just a little more and more angry. Finally, Balak gets mad, he claps his hands, which means, hey, you're done, gets irritated, sends Balaam on his way. It's not what I paid you to come here and do. Balak tells Balaam to get out, and Balaam, though, in true, almost like an infomercial type, uh, type way, but wait, there's more. There's a little bit more. And this brings us to Balaam introducing and completing his fourth and final oracle, which is our focus this morning, Sorry for the long backstory, but it had to be given. So let's stand this morning and read from the Bible. There's three slides. I've got the greenish text. You're going to read the white. In Numbers 24, 12 to 17, it says this. This is Balak. Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, and knows the knowledge of the Most High. He sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered.: Here's our focus. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. God thank you for your word a word of truth and promise. And God, thank you for this season. Lord, we ask that this Christmas season be one where we're moved by all of what we see. Our attention will be continuously directed toward remembering the birth of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So God, I ask that you speak to us this morning. We ask that no one would leave here unchanged tomorrow morning, not because of anything I've said, but because of what you've done. Thank you, God, for all you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you have a seat? It has been said before that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. The study of the stars and astronomy is, is magnificent. It's awe-inspiring. And yes, I believe it really is a humbling experience. Do you want to hear a fun fact this morning? Fun fact, because I'm a bit of a space nerd, if you didn't know that about me. I own a telescope, and I like looking at the moon and stuff, and you can make fun of me if you want. I don't care. If you could take, you don't have this power, by the way, but if you could take our entire solar system, that is the Sun, all the way out until the orbit of Pluto, I'm going to count Pluto in this because, you know, long live Pluto. If you could shrink it all down to fit, to approximately a 90-meter span that's enough, or small enough to fit on James Jerome Field. The nearest star to us, after the sun, of course. Do you know where the nearest star would be? The nearest star, we've dubbed as the name Proxima Centauri, and it would be just on the other side of the city of Montreal. No wows to that? It's a big universe that God created. And, you know, and in fact, actually, if you look up, just kidding, you, don't, you can't see it, we're inside. No, I was hoping people would fall for that and see and look up. That was my trick I was trying to play, it didn't work so well. You can't actually see this star, it's a red dwarf, plant, or a red dwarf star and you can't actually see it. Not with a naked eye anyway. For many centuries though, people have been looking up into the heavens, looking up into the sky with wonder and awe at the celestial bodies that are above us and in fact all around us. And if we go back even to the time of Jesus, before even, people were studying and mapping out the stars and, and, and looking at them, and, and, but it was much, much more than just curiosity that they had, because many people actually believed, many cultures believed that the things happening up there, they were somehow connected to each other and they were somehow connected to the events that happened down here. Somehow it was all together. The sky somehow, some way, made an impact, influenced, or even just simply simply helped us to understand what was going on here on Earth. The events that took place in the world, somehow it was all connected. A connection between the heavens and the Earth. Now before you get a little like, what's he talking about right now? We're going to get back to this later. We're going to hang on to that thought just for now. Many cultures east of Palestine, they looked up at the stars and they ascribed meaning to them. They ascribed meaning to what they saw, significance to the different ones they saw. So when a remarkable event took place in the heavens, something that was just out of place, it didn't fall in line with everything that they knew, wasn't part of the normal routine. It must mean, it must have meant that a remarkable and out-of-routine event was taking place on Earth as well. Enter the Christmas story, and the visit from the wise men, or the Magi, as they're often referred to. The Gospel of Mas- Matthew, Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew records the visit from these wise men from the east, and he says this in Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, "Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star." when it rose, and have come to worship him. A star, a sign, it pointed them in the direction for them to go. Not fully understanding exactly what they were going after, not really maybe understanding where or exactly why, but there must be significance to this star that's out of place. After all, they, they knew it was significant. They didn't show up with pot of gold chocolates. They showed up with real gold. They showed up with frankincense and with myrrh. Gifts fit only for a king. Now, astronomical scholars have had a lot of argument about exactly what this star was that the wise men saw in the East. No real consensus have been given. I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial and I'm just going to be okay with that. There's some thought that maybe it wasn't actually an actual star the way we know it, that it was actually the planet Jupiter. It was in the sky. Some may object to that thought because, of course, the Bible does say star. Or when near the earth, Jupiter is actually the brightest object in our night sky. It makes a close proximity to our planet every 13 months or so. It's not unthinkable that this bright object in the sky was visible around the time of Jesus' birth. Regardless of all of that, though, there was clearly a meaning about this star that had the wise men all excited so much that they brought gifts for a king. They believed, in fact, they knew that a king was being born, and this star was guiding them to him. The star that rose was tracked through the sky, because of its reputation for being the brightest object in the sky, was actually given, because I said the, the stars were given significance, they were given as some sort of meaning, and this bright object, they actually referred to as a kingly star or a royal star star, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel. But the real story here isn't about astronomy, of course, as interesting as it can be, but the biblical story isn't about a star, rather it's about the star of the biblical story. See what I did there? The wise men and quite possibly many others believed at the time that this royal star or royal celestial body was appearing that here on earth, a new royalty must also be appearing. For us now, looking back, yes, of course, indeed a king was born. But a king like any other we've ever known. Because this king wasn't born in a palace, but in a stable. This king had no riches, but is, of course, wealthier than all other kings combined. This king had no army, but is more powerful than any other nation on earth. This king needed no scepter. He didn't, his rule didn't really require it. The wise men arrive in Jerusalem. They ask Herod, hey, where's this, where's this king? We saw his star rise in the sky. Where is the king to be born? Herod then asks them, hey, can, hey when, when you find him, let me know, because I want to go worship him too. Herod is, of course, jealous, though, here, because if another king is born, it obviously threatens his kingship, his rule. So we later find out that Herod made plans to, king all, to kill all the babies born in Bethlehem. The only reason he wanted to know where this king was born was because he had evil plans for it. What Herod intended for evil, God intended for good. N.T. Wright says this of Matthew's rendering of this story about the wise men traveling and visiting and coming to worship Jesus. What he tells us is political dynamite. Jesus, Matthew is saying, is the true king of the Jews, and old Herod is the false one, a usurper, an imposter. As we shall see, this Herod died soon after Jesus' birth, but his sons ruled on. And one of them, Herod Antipas, plays a significant role in the developing story of Jesus himself. This house of Herod did not take kindly to the idea of anyone else claiming to be king of the Jews. What was intended for evil, God intended for good. A star lit the way for wise men to come and worship, the scepter, because it wasn't just a baby, it was a king. star is light. The scepter is majesty. And though these wise men were out of pagan cultures, they came and they worshipped Jesus. It's significant to note that they didn't worship Mary, they didn't worship Joseph, or any animals or anything like that, but they worshipped Jesus. Their focus and attention was all on The baby, Jesus, where is our focus this Christmas season? The blessings that Balaam had pronounced over the nation of Israel so many centuries before was actually a fulfillment of what God had promised to the Israelites so much longer even before that. And Israel lay passively by as God would do his work. Israel camped unaware of what God was up to in their midst. Jesus was a star, the star was rising up out of Jacob and pointing the way to the scepter that would rise out of Israel, the king that rose out of Israel, a king that would lead his people into righteousness, forgiveness, a king would usher in his kingdom that would be established not by military might, but by the power of God at work in people all around the world whose lives are called to point to the one true king over all creation, the King Jesus. As I prophesied in Isaiah 9 to 6, 9, 6 rather, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It is fascinating that God in all his sovereignty, in his dominion, in his rule of all creation, that he would shine this brightest star to lead the way For wise men to travel from the east to Bethlehem to meet our Savior. But not just to meet, but to offer up priceless gifts. Not just to give gifts, but to worship as well. Because there's a star in the story, of course, but the story, well, the story isn't about a star. Balaam announced a star coming up out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. Indeed, a star did rise to point to the king of Jews. The true story, the true star. Of the story, Jesus himself. So remember that connection we talked about with heaven and earth that I mentioned earlier? Jesus himself, though it may have, they may have thought that the stars and the earth had a connection, an influential connection of some sort, and many pagans believed in this connection of influence, but we believe in a connection of incarnation. It isn't the heavens that influence or point to what happens here on earth, but that the true heaven through the person of Jesus Christ broke into our very existence. Was incarnate as a as a human being to save us because we're unable to save ourselves from sin. In pagan cultures, the earth is the main event. That's the main event and the heavens point to what's happening. But in God's kingdom where Jesus rules, heaven is the main event. And all things on earth should point to it, The star was a sign that pointed the wise men straight to where Jesus was. And yet Jesus, a man who lived a meek and modest life, yet garnered more followers than any other person in human history, died the death of, for criminals, even though he did no wrong. But death, of course, wasn't the last word, and we sang that this morning. The grave wasn't the end of Jesus. In many ways, it was just the beginning, because of the scepter. Jesus connected heaven and earth, by the power of his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. What the world may have meant for evil, God meant for good. This Christmas season, there's a lot of signs around us, isn't there? We have lights, we have trees, we have carols, and Santa, and elves on shelves, and whatever else is out there that we use to celebrate Christmas. Some of them are very sacred. Advent wreaths and candles, sacred. Santa Claus, not so much. But it's a sign. It's a sign of what's happening. I want to speak to two categories of people right now. That sounds really impersonal, but it's the only way I could describe it. And I'll let you decide which category you fit into. First is to those who believe the real story of Christmas, to those of us who, despite the emphasis on snowmen and Santa Claus and sails, celebrate Christmas because of its significance in the Christian story. As we see lights, trees, carols, no matter how sacred, no matter how secular even, let's be reminded that Jesus is the light of the world. That no matter what anyone, no matter what our world has designed, described, however they've done it, if they've meant it for evil or just not for good, let's be reminded that God can still bring it to be something good. It's easy for us and for anyone to be bothered by the the over-commercialization of Christmas. I get it. I get bothered with it sometimes, too, and it's easy for us to get so bothered by it that we actually get distracted from what it's really all about. We get more hung up on being upset than being joyful about Jesus. We can be angry that not everything that looks like Christmas looks like Jesus. We can even be mad by the use of the term season's greetings, because nobody even really knows what that means. Or we could use all the signs around us, no matter how sacred or secular, to point people toward our Savior, Jesus Christ. Instead of being upset, be joyful. Smile this Christmas season. There's a lot of hurt at this time of year. There's a reason we hold Christmas comfort services. because Some people are hurting. Not only because of tragedy, but sometimes also just because of the stress of this time of year. There's Christmas parties to go to and more Christmas parties and trying to get the perfect gift and sales and Black Friday that seems to be a lot longer than one day. And sometimes it's just the financial stress that people feel, having to get everything and buy everything and do all that. Let's not add to that stress by being the ones who bring condemnation and disgust. Instead of pointing out how dark it is in the world at times, let's shine the light where we were meant to shine. Let's be lights in our otherwise dark world. Secondly, is to those who may view Christmas as, uh, as a time to exchange gifts, spend time with family, friends, take a few days off work, maybe we'll get to church at some point, all those are good things, I hope to enjoy all of them myself, but the signs are all around us. That's not all this season is about, another but wait there's more moment. There's so much more to this time of year. In fact, there's more to life than just getting the perfect sale, getting time off work. The season speaks of a God who loves his creation so much that he was willing to pay the ultimate price, beginning with the humbling of himself by taking on the form of flesh, living as you and I live facing the same hardships and struggles that you and I face year after year, day after day. Though he lived a life like ours, he died a death unlike any of us will probably ever face so that he could provide that only acceptable, reasonable, all-encompassing sacrifice for sin, that same sin we face every year, every day. The signs are all around us, aren't they? not just in the stars, but all around us. What is your Christmas all about? What's your Christmas really all about? What's my Christmas really all about? Let's go bigger. What's your life all about? What's my life all about? I'm going to call Pastor Scott back. I just want to take us to take a few moments today. And reflect on I want you to think about your meaning of Christmas. What meaning have you ascribed to Christmas? Truly. It's easy for us, especially for us Christians who say, Oh yeah, it's all about Jesus. Of course it's all about Jesus. But really is it? Do all the signs in your life point toward Jesus? There's signs all around us. Are they pointing to Jesus? I want you to take some more time and reflect on the celebrations that you'll have. I want you to think about the time we spend. Spending time at stores, shopping. That's great. I enjoy doing it too. And I love seeing my kids' faces light up at Christmas time. But more than that, I want to see, see my kids love Jesus. I want to see my world love Jesus. More than just presents, more than just celebrations, I want my life, my family, everything that we do to point people toward Jesus. Would you take a few moments this morning and just reflect on what you'll be celebrating this year? What you'll be intentionally celebrating this year?